Hello, and welcome to Word on the Reef, a podcast where we take the plunge into one of the world's most spectacular natural wonders, the Great Barrier Reef. I'm your host and tour guide, Tanya Murphy. Last week, we took a scenic flight over the reef to get an overview of its size and complexity, to find out how it was formed, its history, and a little bit about me and my experience working on the reef. This week, we're going to be taking a look beneath the waves to get an up-close and personal look at the curious creatures who built this natural wonder. So to do that, we're going to head down to the Cairns Marina and jump on board our luxury catamaran. It's a perfect summer day with blue skies and the sea is flat and calm, so it's going to be an absolute ripper of a day for snorkeling. So sit back and relax. Enjoy the salty sea air and grab yourself a slice of pineapple as we hoist the sails and set off on our adventure. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and sea country we're passing through today, the Yidinji, Irukandji and Gunganji people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. As promised, I will be bringing you an interview with a coral scientist, but that interview has been shifted to a future episode. There are some things I really need to show you first, so I'll be your tour guide again today. By the end of this tour, you'll be a baby marine biologist. You'll know how to recognize the types of corals you can see on the reef, how they feed, how they grow, and how they reproduce. You'll also understand what coral bleaching is, what causes it, how to tell the difference between healthy, bleached, and dead corals, and what we can all do to help coral reefs. And here we are, folks. If you look off the bow of the boat right now, you'll see a beautiful turquoise patch of reef ahead of us. The water looks amazing. But before we jump in today, I just want to remind everyone of the golden rules of snorkeling. To protect both your own safety and the well-being of the marine life, please don't touch anything. Don't stand on the coral. Don't litter. Don't feed human food to the fish. And overall, leave nothing but bubbles and take nothing but photographs. Okay, well, what are you waiting for? Let's put on our masks, snorkel and fins and jump in. Okay, so it's been 20 minutes and I've already seen a sea turtle, a moray eel, a blue spotted lagoon ray, a bunch of rainbow colored parrotfish, angelfish, butterflyfish. This reef is absolutely stunning. But we know the building blocks of this habitat, which allow all these animals to exist, are corals. And that's what we're going to be learning about today. So as you swim over this spectacular reef structure, the first thing you might notice is the intricate shapes of the corals below us. It's easy to see why some people look at them and think they look like crystal formations, like stalactites and stalagmites, or that they look like a garden of strange alien plants. But believe it or not, these are actually animals. It's incredible to think that this huge reef, which is more than 2,300 kilometers or 1,200 miles long, bigger than anything ever built by humans and visible from outer space, has actually been built by tiny animals, each one barely bigger than a pinhead, called coral polyps. A coral polyp is closely related to a jellyfish, and it looks very much like a jellyfish, but on a very tiny scale. So imagine once upon a time, there was this tiny little jellyfish, barely bigger than a pinhead, which grew tired of swimming around and decided to attach itself upside down to a shallow, sunny spot on the sea floor. 
As it grows, it divides and duplicates itself to create more polyps until there are hundreds of tiny little polyps all stuck together. Many coral species secrete calcium carbonate, also known as limestone, to build a skeleton, with each polyp nestled in a small limestone cup on the outside of the skeleton and joined to its neighbour by a layer of tissue. So when you look at these corals below you, what you're seeing is a thin layer of colourful tissue over a white limestone skeleton. As each coral polyp lays down more limestone, the coral colony continues to grow bigger. If a coral dies, the polyps rot away, but they leave behind the limestone skeleton and other corals grow on top. Over the millennia, this results in the building of these breathtaking underwater structures like mountains, towers, arches and canyons that we're seeing below us right now. There are more than 600 species of coral at the Great Barrier Reef, each with its own unique shape, and they all have fancy Latin names which are hard to pronounce and hard to remember. But what's easy to remember is that they're divided into two main groups, the hard corals and the soft corals. If you look below us right now, you'll be able to see some soft coral, which looks like long, thin strands of yellow spaghetti waving gently in the current. Spaghetti coral is one of my favourites. It's absolutely gorgeous. Soft corals can also have many other beautiful shapes like elephant ears, flowers, fingers, fans and whips. Soft corals, as the name suggests, do not build a hard limestone skeleton, so they don't help with building reefs. They're very beautiful while alive, but if they die, they rot away, leaving no trace. When it comes to the hard corals, these are grouped into a few main groups according to their shapes, which are really easy to recognise. So if you look below us right now, you might see some corals that are shaped like big flat plates. Can you guess what they're called? If you guessed plate corals, you are a genius. Over here, we can see some beautiful bright blue corals that have a branching shape. Can you guess what they're called? That's right, branching corals. One of the most famous types of branching corals is shaped like the horns of a stag. Can you guess what it's called? I'll give you a clue. It's not foghorn or shoehorn. Here are some nice tan colored corals that are shaped like big rocks or boulders. If you're thinking, I bet they're called boulder corals, then you are starting to get the gist of how this coral classification stuff works. Now look at this boulder coral right below us. It has the appearance of a huge golf ball with little indents where each polyp lives. In case you're wondering, yes, it's called golf ball coral. Feel free to Google a picture of it for those playing along at home. This is an example of a coral where the individual polyps are actually big enough to be clearly visible. If you look around, you might also be able to spot vase corals, leaf corals, encrusting corals, bushy corals, mushroom corals, slipper corals, needle corals, and more. The shapes are really obvious. So now, whenever you go snorkeling on a coral reef, you can impress your friends with your marine biology knowledge and swim around naming all the corals, and you'll be pretty much correct as far as the main categories are concerned. So now we know that corals are animals, I can hear you asking, what do corals eat? Well, corals are actually voracious predators. Each polyp, like its relative, the jellyfish, has tentacles, which it sticks out to catch tiny creatures like plankton that might be drifting in the water. But these tentacles are clear in color and extremely tiny. They're also more active at night and often retracted during the day. So that's why we can't usually see these tentacles while we're snorkeling. 
As you can see, the water here is crystal clear and there isn't much stuff drifting in the water. So corals can only get about 20% of their energy needs by grabbing microscopic animals with their tentacles. They get the other 80% of their energy from the sun, which is absolutely wild and quite unique in the animal kingdom. You may know that plants can create energy from the sun using a process called photosynthesis, but animals can't do that. So coral has tiny microscopic plant cells living inside it with a really funky name, zooxanthellae. It's such a fun word to say. Say it with me, zooxanthellae. There's an exam at the end of this tour, guys, so make sure you remember that. Just joking. The important thing to remember is that these microscopic plant cells act like solar panels, photosynthesizing sunlight to produce sugars, which they share with their coral host. In exchange, they have a safe place to live. This is known as a symbiotic relationship where two different species known as symbionts live together and help each other survive. Since a coral polyp is related to a jellyfish, it's mostly clear and has very little color by itself. The zooxanthellae plant cells give the coral most of its color. Healthy coral can come in many different beautiful colors, including pink, blue, and green, depending on the color of the zooxanthellae living inside. However, it's also very common for coral to be brown, beige, olive, and other natural colors. Sometimes people have a misconception that all corals should be bright rainbow colors, or that a brown coral is a dead coral, but that's not always the case. Looking below us right now, you'll see many brown and beige colored corals, which are perfectly healthy and vibrant and home to a vast array of marine life. It's the amazing and intricate shapes that make all corals beautiful, not just the ones with bright rainbow colors. So now we know how coral gets its color, but what does it mean when coral bleaches? Well, when a coral gets sick due to stressful events like disease, excess fresh water from flooding or heat waves, the colorful zooxanthellae are expelled. This causes the coral to appear pale or white and is known as coral bleaching. In the early stages of bleaching, corals can also appear fluorescent, which can be extremely beautiful, but is a sign of severe stress. Now, right now it's February, 2024 and the height of Australian summer. Due to global warming, our oceans are hotter than ever before, and water temperatures at the Great Barrier Reef are about one degree hotter than average. You can probably feel that the surface water we're swimming in right now is like a warm bath of around 31 degrees Celsius or 88 degrees Fahrenheit, which feels great for us, but it's not great for corals because they're very heat sensitive. The reef we're snorkeling on right now is extremely beautiful, but if you look at this little patch over here, you will see some corals which are starting to turn fluorescent and pale, especially around the top sections because they are experiencing heat stress. These bleached corals are not dead, but without their zooxanthellae to gather energy from the sun, they're at increased risk of starvation, disease, and death. Now, fingers crossed, if conditions return to normal within the next few weeks, some of these corals, especially resilient species, may recover their colorful zooxanthellae and live on. But if the hotter than average conditions continue for too long, some of these corals may die. We will be checking back in on these corals over the next few weeks, so make sure you stay tuned to this series for updates. Anyway, when a coral dies, the polyps rot away, leaving behind a bare limestone skeleton, which soon turns gray as it gets covered in a fuzzy carpet of algae known as turfing algae. 
On a healthy reef, some coral death due to disease and predation is natural. Other nearby corals, which manage to survive, can eventually grow over the top of the dead corals, allowing the reef to grow back. However, human-caused threats like global warming are making coral bleaching events much more severe and frequent, giving the reef less time to recover. Coral bleaching was once a rare sight on the Great Barrier Reef. There are no records of bleaching beyond small, isolated incidences prior to 1998. But now, the Great Barrier Reef has experienced four mass coral bleaching events over just the past seven years. These events in 2016, 2017, 2020 and 2022 saw various levels of bleaching occurring over hundreds and thousands of kilometres of reef. Such severe and widespread bleaching events have never before been recorded on the reef and are a result of unusually warm sea surface temperatures. Climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas is heating up our planet and our oceans, making marine heat waves and coral bleaching events more frequent and severe. In fact, if greenhouse gas emissions continue at the current rate, coral bleaching will become an annual occurrence by the 2040s or possibly even much sooner, leaving no time for corals to recover. But there is good news. If we act now, there are still plenty of things we can all do to reduce carbon pollution, limit global warming and protect the reef. And I'm going to talk about those solutions shortly. But first, I want to talk about the other really spectacular way that corals can regenerate. And that is the same way that most animals regenerate their populations. A few nights after the full moon in October and November, which is spring in Australia, all the corals of the Great Barrier Reef release eggs and sperm from their polyps into the water. These eggs and sperm mix together and fertilise to create tiny coral larvae, which drift in the current. If you're lucky enough to visit the reef during coral spawning, you may get to see coral spawn in the water, which is incredible, although it is a bit weird if you think about what you're swimming in. Anyway, many of these helpless coral larvae will be eaten by predators, but some of them will find a safe place to land. So if there are any dead corals on the reef, coral larvae will land on them and start to grow into new baby corals known as coral recruits. These tiny babies are our hope for the future as they strive to repopulate damaged areas of reef. However, Corals only spawn once a year and grow very slowly. The fastest growing corals are branching corals, which can grow up to about 20 centimetres per year. But these live fast, die young species, often known as the weedy species of coral, are very fragile and will be the first to succumb to any subsequent bleaching events. Meanwhile, slower growing species like boulder corals may only grow a few millimetres per year, which is why it can take decades for coral reefs to fully recover from stress events. So while there have been reports of some types of coral growing back quickly after bleaching events, overall the reef is still experiencing a loss of biodiversity as many slower growing species are not able to recover quickly. That doesn't mean we should give up hope because we still have so much left to protect. It's important to remember that the Great Barrier Reef is huge and stress has affected different areas differently. The number of corals bleached in each bleaching event, the severity of the bleaching and the survival rate have varied throughout the reef, depending on the duration and severity of the heat stress, as well as the species, depth, currents and other factors. And even on patches of dead coral, rubble and sand, 
there is still a huge array of marine life, such as fish, invertebrates, and seaweed. So as we look at this beautiful reef below us today, you will see there are some corals which are starting to look slightly bleached and pale, which is a concerning sign, and we'll be keeping an eye on those corals as summer continues to see how they fare. There are also some corals which are dead and grey, killed by previous bleaching events over the past few years. But as you can see, there are also still lots and lots of beautiful healthy corals and plenty of fish and turtles and things to see. Even after 12 years of diving and snorkeling on this reef, I still never get tired of it because there are always new things to discover. If I've visited the reef thousands of times and I still jump at any chance to go and see it again, even more reason why everyone else around the world should put it on their bucket list. But now I can hear the lifeguard calling us in, which means it's time to get out of the water, do a head count and depart the reef. So as we set sail back to Cairns, I think you'll all agree based on what we've seen today that visiting the Great Barrier Reef is an absolutely extraordinary experience. By coming here with a high standard eco-friendly tour operator, you can learn an incredible amount of knowledge which will help increase your appreciation of the marine world and hopefully inspire you to go home and take actions in your own life to help protect it. Our reef is still incredibly beautiful and we still have time to save it, but it is under a lot of stress and the window of opportunity to preserve it for future generations is growing smaller. If we want to keep it healthy, what we do over the next decade is going to be crucial and there's no time to lose. We must use our votes, our voices, petitions, letters and every means possible to ask our elected representatives for the strongest possible climate policies to rapidly phase out the mining and burning of outdated fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas and transition to the latest renewable energy technology. This will not only create tens of thousands of new jobs in the renewable sector, but will also protect more than 64,000 jobs that depend on the Great Barrier Reef. Taking action can be as simple as moving your money away from banks and super funds that invest in fossil fuels, joining or donating to a climate action group or starting a conversation with family and friends. If you're passionate about protecting our reef, another thing I would urge you to do is to book your next holiday and come and see it for yourself. Come and learn about what's being done to protect it and support those tour operators who are advocating for the reef and educating people about it. The Great Barrier Reef is one of the best managed marine parks in the world. Tour vessels require permits and can only visit specific sites, so less than 1% of the reef is actually visited by tourists, and those sites are meticulously cared for. The positives that come out of tourism are enormous. For every tourist that visits the reef, part of your tour fee goes to the Marine Park Authority to help with research and protection of the reef. Many tour operators also participate in reef restoration projects, scientific research, pest removal and more to help protect the reef, which wouldn't be possible without your support. And perhaps the most important benefit of all, every year tourism enables millions of people from all over the world to visit the reef, fall in love with it and learn about it. Many people have such a life-changing experience at the reef that it inspires them to go home and take action in their own lives to advocate for stronger climate action and reef protection. I am one of those who has been inspired to take action due to my love of the reef. When you spend time at the reef, it will change your life as well. In future episodes, we'll be talking with some experts about some of the ways in which high standard tour operators are collaborating with scientists and advocacy organizations to help protect the reef. But for now, I'd like to thank you for traveling with Word on the Reef Cruises. 
Please subscribe to this series and follow Word on the Reef on Instagram to get notified when it's time for our next adventure. This is a not-for-profit passion project, so if you enjoyed it, please give us a like, share, and tell your friends. If you'd like to get involved in action to help protect the Great Barrier Reef, visit www.fightforourreef.org.au. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 a month over at patreon.com slash wordontheriefpodcast. You'll get a shout out and the proceeds will help towards covering costs like podcast hosting, email hosting, website hosting, and so on. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to Reese. Thanks, Reese, for your support for our beautiful marine environment. That's all for now. Best fishes and see you next time.